When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 31, Tierra Fermi, part 2. Well, I'm finally back. Sorry it's been so long since I last put up an episode. I've been ill, I've had commitments with work, and also, there's been a lot of sport on recently. I'm a big fan of cycling, so I've been watching the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia, and the World Cup is on, of course, and England did unexpectedly well. I will try to keep the episodes coming as regularly as I can, but occasionally there will be breaks like this. Before starting, I would once again like to draw your attention to information about how to donate to the Guatemalan Red Cross. I know the news cycle has moved on, but the consequences of the volcanic eruption are far from finished. As of five days ago, the official death toll was 113 people, and 329 are still missing. I don't want to sound morbid, but realistically, if you're still missing after a month, I think the chances of being found are quite slim. Many more are still displaced and living in shelters. If you do want to donate, you can do so by going to www.cruzroja.gt slash D-O-N-A-T-I-V-O-S Someone also recently bought my charity episode for the Mexican earthquake, which happened last year. I'd like to thank them, and also remind you that you can get a bonus episode by visiting the Latin American History Podcast Patreon. For five US dollars, you get access to a special episode on Mesoamerica, and all the money goes towards charity for the relief fund. Anyway, on with the episode. So in part one of this series, Balboa had managed to establish himself as leader of the colony at Veragua. Ojeda was gone, Nicuesa was dead, and Nicuesa's deputy Enciso had been manoeuvred out of power. Enciso was still around, however, and his presence in the colony represented the greatest of Balboa's internal threats. He apparently wasn't simply accepting the new situation either. Instead, he was demanding huge amounts of compensation for his loss of position, and for the investment he'd initially made in Ojeda's expedition. Soon, Balboa tired of this, and had him arrested. Ironically, the charges he cited were usurpation of authority, violation of contract, and attempted misappropriation. These were all things which Balboa could quite easily be accused of. Needless to say, in this far-flung outpost, 
not yet connected to the structures of the empire as a whole, the trial was not a fair one, and then Caesar was found guilty. Balboa's position within the colony was now pretty much secure, but his status within the greater Spanish empire was unclear. How would the king react to his power grab? This uncertainty was the main external threat he faced, and he was keen to head it off. Perhaps with a view towards painting a positive picture of himself, Balboa had a change of heart in regards to Enciso. He freed him and let him return to Spain. However, Enciso was accompanied by two representatives of the colony to tell their version of recent events. Enciso's complaints, trial and release all happened very quickly and he left within two months of Nicuesa's departure. Balboa's delegation seemed to have drowned Enciso out and the king took no action to replace him. One of the representatives was the co-mayor, who shared power with Balboa. This meant that Balboa was now really the only leader in the colony. This is a position he would hold for the next three years. Confident that he'd done all he could to secure his position, Balboa turned his attention to expanding the colony and making it prosper. Perhaps success in this area would add weight to his argument that he should be hailed for his achievements rather than punished for his insubordination. He was probably also aware that his colonists were an adventurous lot with ambitions of their own. They wanted to win their own fame and fortune and would quickly grow restless sitting inside their small outpost. Besides, Balboa himself had already shown that he was not the sort of person who could happily sit idle for long. Of course, doing this meant embarking on campaigns of conquest and pacification. He surveyed his options and quickly decided which direction he would head in. To the south were the jungles of the Darien, a difficult and inhospitable place to expand. Westward was land ruled by a cacique named Samaco. A scouting party had already been sent in this direction and had been met by determined resistance. This party was led by Pizarro, and he had been forced to hastily return to the colony. No, north seemed to be the way to go. Here there was a polity called Careta, which should prove to be an easy conquest. In the spring of 1511, Balboa set off, accompanied by around a hundred men. Careta occupied land along the coast, and at this point in time it was engaged in a war with a people from the mountains directly inland, ruled by a cacique named Ponca. This war had weakened them and compromised their ability to resist the Spanish. Balboa was not marching into unknown territory. In fact, the cacique of Careta, Chima, complained when food was requested of him. He said that much of it had already been given to Enciso, who appeared to have stopped there when he left for Spain. Furthermore, it appears that several Spaniards, left over from the Cuesa's explorations, were living in Careta, and had been given fairly important roles in the running of the polity. One of them, a man named Juan Alonso, was even in charge of the army, and is said to have appeared to the Spanish as naked as the Indians he led. Whether he and the other Spaniards helped Balboa or not is unclear, but either way, Careta was quickly annexed into the colony. Chima was taken prisoner, but was quickly released. Officially, he was released because of the kindness he had shown to the lost Spaniards like Juan Alonso, but in fact, 
It was probably his usefulness and willingness to cooperate that saved him. An agreement was reached. Chima would convert to Christianity. His people would provide food and gold to the Spanish, and they would act as guides. As well as the leniency the Spanish showed them, the other thing they got in return was help fighting Ponca. This might have seemed like a useful favour to the Coreta, but let's be realistic. The Spanish didn't need to be persuaded to attack a neighbouring people as part of a deal. They were going to do that anyway. The final symbol of the agreement took the form of Chima's daughter, who was given to Balboa as a concubine. Soon afterwards, Balboa marched along the valley which led into Ponca's territory and found his village empty. Satisfied that he had upheld his end of the deal, Balboa burnt the village and stole what gold he could find there. They had their eyes on bigger prizes. Chima had told them of a cacique to the north, called Comogre. While Chima was a chieftain, Comogre was the local equivalent of a king, and he ruled over several chieftains of Chima's stature. His state was fairly organised and advanced, and his land was densely populated. Balboa marched up there, and when he arrived he was greeted by local nobles and taken to the palace. There, the Spanish were wowed by the level of craftsmanship that had gone into the palace, and by the amount of food gathered in the storerooms. The whole experience was said to have impressed Balboa, and he apparently remarked that this was the most advanced civilization the Spanish had encountered in the Americas. That evening, a great feast was held, and Balboa's silver tongue was given another chance to do its work. He must have charmed Comogre, because by the end of his stay, he had secured several important things. First was an alliance. Second was the baptism of Comogre. Third was a gift of gold and seventy slaves. And fourth, perhaps the most valuable, was the information that another sea lay nearby beyond the hills. Now the American mainland of course runs from north to south, and Central America follows this rule as well. Asia was of course thought, correctly, to be to the west of where they were, so when they were told that this sea was to the south, it confused things a bit. The Spanish were looking for a sea to the east, not to the south. Look at the map of Central America, however, and you will see that the thin strip of Panama actually runs almost completely perpendicular to the rest of the continent. That is, it goes from east to west, not north to south. This new sea was the Pacific, the one they were looking for, but Baboa did not know this for sure at this point. For this reason, he simply named it the South Sea, and it was only when the explorer, Magellan, reached it by circumnavigating the bottom of South America, thousands of kilometres to the south, that he named it the Pacific. Knowledge of the South Sea was given to them by Comogre's son, Ponquiaco. He also told them that its shores were home to great kingdoms that were wildly rich with gold. Now the most precise details of this expedition have to be taken with a bit of caution. How can a writer who was not there, and may be writing a fair amount of time after the fact, confidently state fine details and give protagonists motivations with certainty? Often chroniclers will tell a story that is certainly plausible, but which reads a little too much like a good story. This is one of those, and it feels like a scene made for television. While the feast was going on, Ponquiaco 
was said to have been quietly observing the Spanish, trying to weigh up their intentions. As the night went on, he was less and less impressed with what he saw. He is said to have rather perceptively noticed their greed, and come to the conclusion that it might be best to try and move them on before they turned on his people. His suspicions were confirmed when towards the end of the night, the Spanish took out some scales and started weighing the gold that had been given to them. They even started arguing amongst themselves as they divided it up. It was at this point that Ponquiaco, being shrewd and clever, decided to make his move. He stood up and dramatically knocked the scales, gold and all, to the floor and remonstrated with the Spanish. He asked them why they cared so much for gold and why they were concerned with the weight rather than the artistic skill that had gone into turning it into fine jewellery. Why would they melt it down and sell it, rather than appreciating the craftsmanship? And why was all this enough to take them so far from home to cause trouble in the lands of strangers? It was then that he told them of the gold-rich kingdoms by the South Sea, and he even offered to take them there himself if they wanted gold so much. According to the chroniclers, Ponquiaco had two motivations for this. Firstly, to shift the greedy Spanish onto someone else and secondly, to perhaps benefit from the conquest of those kingdoms, which were rivals of his own. It's a nice story, and who knows, it might be true. This episode would probably flow better and be more engaging if I recounted it, as it is provided. But in truth, I would have felt uncomfortable doing so. Stories like this present me with a problem. The story of Atwe's death and his desire not to go to heaven if Spaniards were there is another example. These stories are good and I want to tell them, but I have to keep pointing out that they are probably not true. In this case, how did Ponquiaco make his speech? Through a translator? If so, that would surely have taken some of the drama out of it, and it's surprising that not being able to make his speech directly, the act of knocking the gold on the floor didn't result in a big fight or a massacre. We've already seen the Spanish engage in those sort of things for far less than this. Having just met them as well, how would he know that they intended to melt the gold jewellery down? And as I've already pointed out, how can a later chronicler have known what his motivations were? Sure, a certain amount can be inferred, but not enough to make a story this perfect. Whatever really happened, the Spanish did not set off in the direction of the South Sea. Perhaps they believed that they would need more men to conquer the powerful kingdoms there, which incidentally did not exist. Instead, they returned to the colony. Once he had been there for a while, news arrived that the king had decided not to replace Balboa for now, or have him face justice for his rebellion against Nicuesa and Ojeda. Reinforcements and supplies arrived from Hispaniola, and the colony seemed to be thriving. Everyone was well fed, and there were now about 400 people living there. Balboa filled his time with a bit of light exploring along the coastline and up the rivers to the south of the colony, while he prepared to visit the South Sea. Soon, however, things became more difficult. In late 1512, Chima turned against him and launched an unsuccessful assassination attempt. It was discovered when Chima's daughter, the one given to Balboa, warned him of it. A rebellion had been planned after the assassination, which aimed to drive the Spanish out of Panama. With the element of surprise gone, however, it was defeated before it even got started. 
This incident prompted Balboa to improve the colony's fortifications. He then had to face down another threat to his rule, as some of the colonists decided to cook up a scheme with an indigenous cacique to get rid of him. When the plot was discovered, both Balboa's loyalists and the rebels marched into the town square and prepared to fight. Somehow the confrontation was avoided, as everyone realised their position was too precarious for infighting. The victorious group would have had no chance if the native people decided to attack, as half of the colony's fighting men would be gone. In the end, they all decided to return to the status quo. Baboa had to do something. The men were growing restless. He needed to assert his authority and provide them with some riches. Despite believing himself to be undermanned and under-equipped, he announced his plan to find the South Sea. The route he drew up would take him through the territory of Ponca, Chima's old enemy. Despite the assassination and rebellion attempt, Chima had not been removed. He was ordered to prepare a set of guides and translators to assist with the expedition. Balboa and about 190 Spaniards set off by boat to Chima's village. From there they would march inland. They set off within 24 hours of arriving, but half were to remain behind to keep an eye on things. The Spaniards were vastly outnumbered by their allied guides and porters, who numbered in the hundreds. After two days marching, they reached the main village on Ponca's territory, which once again was abandoned. He had seen Balboa coming, and had once again hidden his people in the hills. I don't know what Balboa's motivation was here, but he seemed very keen to make contact with Ponca and get him on side. Despite his hurry to get started, he waited for five days until Ponca finally came down to meet him. Balboa embarked on another of his charm offensives, and assured Ponca that he meant no harm. They stayed at the village for a week. Ponca gave him information about the best route to take, and what the people they would encounter were like. I can only speculate that this was useful information, which the previously encountered locals had been unable to provide, due to the effort that Balboa went to to get it. The next group they would encounter was led by a cacique named Torecha, and Ponca was also at war with him. Apparently his people were a branch of the Caribs, and Balboa could expect a hostile reception. First, however, they had to reach his territory. This next part of the journey was the most difficult of the whole expedition, with a path needing to be cut through untouched, rugged mountains and forests. The other side of this difficult section was only about 30 miles away, but it took them five days to get there. When they emerged into a clearing, they found themselves faced with Torecha, backed by 600 men. A battle quickly ensued, the details of which are unknown, but Balboa managed to win, and Toracha was killed in the process. Now so far, Balboa has shown himself to be relentless in his ambition, and willing to step over people to achieve his aims. He has, however, by the standards of the time and his conquistador class, been relatively forgiving. He may have calculated this as in his own interest, but he has made an effort to win over caciques and forgiven them when they have rebelled. He did the same with the Spaniards who tried to remove him just before this expedition. His next move, however, was not to be an enlightened one.
Now, the subject of gender has in the last couple of years become a flashpoint in political culture wars. Transgender people are being more assertive, and some conservative people like to argue that physical anatomy means that gender is a biological thing, that there are only two possible genders. This is obviously not the place to get into all that here, other people can argue about it, but I can say, and have to for this story, that having studied anthropology, I can tell you with certainty, outside of the Western world there are plenty of examples of cultures that do not divide gender neatly into male and female categories. Taracha's people appear to have been one of those cultures. After winning the battle, Balboa and his men walked into the nearby village and were shocked to find what we would call cross-dressers. Some of these were among the most powerful of Taracha's nobility. Of course, that kind of thing was not at all tolerated at the time. In fact, the Catholic Church considered it to be one of the worst sins possible. Balboa rounded up everyone involved and set his war dogs on them. They were all torn to pieces. The next day, Balboa set off again, and by ten o'clock in the morning, from the top of a nearby hill, he caught his first glimpse of the Pacific. He would have been expecting it. He knew it was there and that it was close. But still, this was a momentous moment in the history of European exploration. Four days later, they reached a beach and claimed the ocean for the Spanish crown. While this was not the direct sea route they were hoping for, the Spanish had now finally found a route of sorts to the Pacific Ocean. A major driver of their exploration, in fact their initial motivation, had been getting to the Spice Islands in East Asia. They had accidentally discovered the Americas were in the way, and as initial returns were slow, they still largely saw the Spice Islands as the ultimate aim. Now they had discovered that an ocean did exist on the other side of the American landmass, and although they did not know for sure that this ocean did have Asia on its other side, discovering it would have reassured them that their target could be reached. That said, there was still no way of getting to this new ocean without disembarking your ships, and as we know, living when we do, no easy direct route will be found. In the end, the conundrum will lead to the building of the Panama Canal in the 20th century, in the very area that Balboa discovered the Pacific. Satisfied that they had achieved their aim, Balboa set about making contact with a local cacique. Interestingly, this one was a woman, although Balboa dealt with her representative, her brother. Once again, he charmed them and established friendly relations. He then did the same with a neighbouring cacique to the north, Balboa was hanging around the coast rather than going home because he had heard about a group of islands which were said to be rich with pearls. He wanted to go out and investigate, but the sea was rough and the local caciques told him that it would be too dangerous for at least another few months. Balboa, however, was determined and eventually persuaded one of his new allies to provide him with canoes and men. It only took a day to get there, but as predicted... The trip was difficult, and they only just made it. Once there, they made contact with the inhabitants, who greeted them with hostility. A skirmish broke out, which the Spanish easily won. But after a few days, Balboa was able to get their leader on side, and turn him into yet another ally. Unfortunately, this island was not the place where pearls could be harvested. For that, they would have to go to another nearby island, 
The cacique did have about 200 pearls with him, which he gave to Balboa as a gift. This cheered him up a bit. What didn't cheer him up so much was that the cacique firmly refused to provide them with the boats they needed to go there. Because of the weather, he judged it too dangerous, and Balboa to his credit accepted this. His next move was to start the trip back to the colony, beginning with the crossing to the mainland. He chose to land in a different part of the coast, and again made friends with another cacique. Here he said goodbye to the other cacique, the one who had provided the boats which they used to get to the islands, and accompanied them. This may of course all be made up, but the two were said to have physically embraced as they went their separate ways. As they marched back to the Caribbean coast, the next cacique was not amenable to Balboa's diplomatic skills. He was said to be another Carib, and was hated by all of Balboa's allies. This encounter was a violent one, and the Spanish ended up torturing him to death. Perhaps this was a ploy on the part of Balboa's allies, as they are said to have told him that the Carib cacique had gold mines within his territory. Despite the torture, he refused to give up their location. Perhaps Balboa's allies saw the Spanish as a useful tool to rid themselves of one of their enemies. Balboa carried on, but entered a sparsely populated part of the region. For the next eight days or so, they hardly encountered anyone. As they were accustomed to either being given food or looting it, this put pressure on their supplies. Eventually, however, they came to the territory of Pocorosa, one of the most powerful caciques in that part of Central America. Friendly relations were established, although perhaps with a bit more caution, due to the power which Pocorosa wielded. Here it seemed that there was another concrete example of the ploy I mentioned a minute or two ago. Pocorosa told Balboa of a rival cacique with rich gold mines, and so Balboa set off and defeated him. No gold was found, besides a few small lumps on the surface, and it transpired that this cacique was a rival of Pocorosa. Balboa decided to restore the cacique to his position, in order to create another ally. Next, they re-entered familiar territory, reaching the land of Comogre. Since they had last been there, its cacique had died, leaving Ponquiaco, the man who had first told them of the southern sea, in charge. They are said to have all greeted each other warmly. By this point, the Spaniards were exhausted, and so they spent the next four days recovering. When they moved on, they reached the lands of Ponca, who gave him news that a ship had arrived in the colony from Spain. It had been there for a while, and would probably depart soon, so Balboa decided to set off as quick as he could. He was desperate to catch the ship, to provide them with news of his adventures, as well as to find out if there was any important news coming from the other direction. The king could, after all, change his mind at any moment when it came to leaving Balboa in charge of the colony. He would not miss the ship, but on arrival, he found out that this was exactly what the king seemed to be doing. The details of this will have to wait until next time, however. Yes, this was initially going to be one episode, and then I conceded that it would be two. Now, having done more work on it, it looks like it's going to expand to a massive four. You now have two more to look forward to. Until the next one, thanks for listening. 
You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.